Hey, everybody. It is great to have you with us today, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or online. Either way, I am just really glad that you're here. And as you can see, we are continuing in our journey through some of the more strange and unusual aspects of our faith. These beliefs we have as Christians in the supernatural that for those of us who've been a part of the church for a long time just seem kind of normal and natural, but for those who are outside of the church or maybe for folks who are new to church, let's face it, some of the things that we believe are kind of weird and out there, right? Especially in a post-enlightenment period. And so today, as we're continuing that journey, I want to look at one of the most captivating and at times confusing supernatural aspects of our faith, and that is our belief in Satan and demons, these supernatural expressions of evil that exist in and have influence over our world. And I just have to tell you, of all the supernatural things we as Christians believe in, this is the one that seems most fascinating to most people. Think about it, in our culture, all of the different movies and books and television shows that, that deal with Satan and demons. And sometimes, if we're not careful as Christians, we end up developing our beliefs about Satan and demons more from M. Night Shyamalan than we do from God's Word. And so there's a lot of confusion about Satan and demons. In fact, let me just ask, how many of you have at least one question in your mind right now about Satan or demons? Let me see. There's some things you wondered about. Sure. And how many of you would say, Philip, I could use some practical help in dealing with the devil in my life, my family, my world? Yeah, that's almost all of us. Well, the good news is you've come to the right place. What I want to try to do today is, first of all, just separate fact from fiction when it comes to Satan and demons. And then secondly, more importantly, I want us to look at some practical ways to fight back against the enemy. Because remember, the whole goal of this series is not just to satisfy our curiosity about these supernatural things, but really to figure out how we can practically leverage these supernatural truths and realities in the daily reality of our lives and our struggle. So let's just start with the facts about Satan and demon. Now, obviously, there's a lot written about Satan and demons, not just in our culture, but even in the Bible. But there are three core passages from which we get the origin and our understanding of Satan and demons. And I've put those on your message notes. There's a passage from Ezekiel 28. There's a passage from Isaiah chapter 14. And, and there's a passage from Revelation chapter 12. And I, I put those up there because I really hope you'll go home and sometime this week you will read through those passages and maybe discuss them a little bit with your home group. But through these three passages, we get the basic storyline about the origin of Satan. And that is the fact that Satan was an angel of God. And not just any old run-of-the-mill angel, but Satan was the highest-ranking angel in the highest class of angels in all of heaven. And on top of that, he was the most beautiful, the most magnificent 
of all the angels. In fact, I think it's the Isaiah passage where he is referred to as the son of the morning star. He's bright and, and beautiful and magnificent. In fact, that's where we get the name Lucifer from. The English word named Lucifer is actually comes from a Latin translation of the Hebrew phrase morning star. He was beautiful. And perhaps it was that beauty and his position that caused him in pride to decide that he didn't want to worship and serve God. He wanted to be God. He, the, the scripture says he attempted to ascend the mount of God. He wanted to be God and he rebelled against God and apparently was able to convince some of the other angels to join him in this rebellion. And some scholars believe it could be, have been as many as one third of the angels joined Satan in this rebellion against God. Now God will not tolerate rebellion, especially in heaven. So Satan and the demons are thrown out of heaven, out of God's presence to be cast onto the earth and under the earth. And that's kind of where they are. Now, we don't know when this event took place. We can pretty much assume that it obviously took place before the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden because Satan is there in the form of a servant. But we don't really know when that happens. We just know that it did happen. But if you kind of unpack that reality of Satan and where he comes from, there are really three core facts that you as a Christ follower need to understand about demons and Satan. The first fact you need to understand is that they are real. Satan and demons are not some metaphor for evil created by ancient biblical writers. They are created beings, and they are as real as any other created being in this world. They're real. Now, people ask me all the time, Phil, you don't really believe like that Satan is real or that demons are real? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And that kind of freaks people out. They're like, really? You seem like kind of an educated person. You don't seem like one of those, you know, backwoods, holy roller types. Why in the world do you believe that Satan and demons are real? Here's why I believe it. Because Jesus did. See, Satan and demons don't just show up in the Old Testament books. They don't just show up in the prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation that are full of metaphors and pictures. They're found in the New Testament, and specifically, they're also found in the Gospels. These historical narratives of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. In fact, in the Gospels alone, there are 25 unique encounters that Jesus personally has with Satan and demons. In fact, nearly a quarter of all of Jesus' miracles and parables deal with Satan and demons. In fact, the former pastor and evangelist Archibald Brown said that the clarity of the reality of Satan and demons is so clear in the scripture that to doubt it is perhaps to doubt scripture itself. They are real. They're not mythical creatures. They're not metaphors for evil. They are created beings, angels that fell from grace. They are real. They are also powerful. That's the second fact we need to understand, that angels and demons are powerful. As I said two weeks ago, we have a very real spiritual enemy 
And that spiritual enemy is not some short little fat guy in a red jumpsuit with horns and a pitchfork. He's a powerful, cunning, and crafty enemy. In fact, that's why Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, when he was writing to the early first century Christian church, when he wanted them to understand what Satan, their enemy, was like, he described him as a lion. Now, why would Peter choose that particular animal? Here's why. Because in first century Palestine, the apex predator, the most dangerous animal around was the lion. Peter wanted them to understand that Satan is powerful. He's real, he's powerful, but here's the good news. He's limited. They are limited. As powerful as Satan and demons are, they are limited in what they can and cannot do. Because they are created beings, they are not equal to God. There's not some cosmic battle between good and evil that's being fought back and forth like they're equal, you know, combatants in the fight. God and God alone is sovereign. And he is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over demons. They're limited. Satan and demons are not omniscient like God. They don't know everything. They don't know the future. They cannot read your thoughts. They're, they are also not omnipresent. Unlike God, they cannot be in all places at all times. They are limited. They cannot possess and control the life of a follower of Jesus who is filled with his Holy Spirit. They can't. Now, they can put strongholds. They can influence you, but they cannot take control over you if you are a believer and have the Holy Spirit of God. They're limited. And here's the thing. Their greatest limitation is that because they are created by God, they are subject to God's plan and God's purposes. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything was created by God for God, for his ultimate purpose, right? You see that throughout the Gospels. Anytime Jesus or one of Jesus' followers in Jesus' name gave a command to a demon, that demon had to obey because the name of Jesus is above every name. They are limited. And so as I look at those three facts about Satan and demons, here's the practical to me. Here's the takeaway, the application, that as a believer, I am not to take them lightly, nor am I to live in fear of them. As a believer, I am to have a healthy respect for Satan and demons and their influence and impact, but I don't have to hide in the corner like I'm watching The Exorcist movie. And let me tell you, that's a mighty difficult needle to thread. That balance, right, between a healthy respect and not being overwhelmed by Satan and demons. Kind of reminds me of back in my coaching days. One of the hardest things to do as a high school football coach is to make sure that our team had a healthy respect for whoever they were playing that Friday night. Because some of the teams we played were bad. I mean, they were always bad every year. They were small. They were slow. They were 
poorly coached. And so our team that week during preparation would often go, oh, you know, all we got to do is show up and we win because we're way stronger than they are. And if any of you are fans of football, you realize anybody can be anybody if you're not prepared. If you don't have a healthy respect for the enemy, you're going to get beat. The other end of that extreme is some weeks we played some powerhouse teams. I mean, they were big, they were strong. Every year they were dominant in our league. They showed up on three buses, you know, a hundred. We had like 30 players. They'd have a hundred. They'd cover the sidelines. And sometimes it would be easy for our team to go, they're too good. We can't beat them. It doesn't matter how good we play. They would be intimidated. They were beaten before we ever took the field. You need that healthy balance as a Christ follower between not taking the enemy lightly, but not being overwhelmed by them. And I believe that the key to striking that balance of a healthy respect, but not overwhelmed by, is to understand their tactics. To understand how Satan and demons oppose us. I think that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, so that Satan will not outsmart us. How? For we are familiar with his evil schemes. In other words, the more aware we are of Satan and his demons and how they work, the more likely we are to have victory over them rather than becoming victims of them. If you know how they operate. So what are the schemes? How does Satan oppose us? Well, the most obvious tool that Satan uses is pride. Pride is the whole reason Satan is Satan and not this beautiful son of the morning star. His own pride, that's his signature move. That's how he most often opposes us. In fact, anytime, anytime you have pride, pride in your thoughts, pride in the way you treat other people, pride in the way you see yourself, that is Satan at work because he's all about pride. Now, that's his signature move, but it's not his only move. In fact, I believe the ways that Satan opposes us as Christians is probably best seen in the names of of Satan. There there are over 20 plus names for Satan throughout the Bible, but the three most common names, the three names that Jesus used to describe Satan, I, I think they reveal the most common ways that Satan opposes us. See, we've bought into the culture this idea that when we're under a satanic attack, you know, it means we're levitating above the bed, our heads spinning around, we're throwing up green pea soup and talking in a voice like this. That's what we think satanic attack is like. But listen, Satan is much more subtle, much more coming than that. So how does he oppose us? Well, one of the ways he opposes us is by using the world around us using the world around us. That's why in John chapter 12, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. Now, by world, I'm not talking about this physical planet we live on. I'm talking about the broken systems and philosophies and ways of this world. Because this world is in outright rebellion against God, right? And that's not a new thing. I know we always look at the news and go, if in our, gener- our, our world's going to hell in a handbasket, like that's a new thing. No, it's not. The world has been going to hell in a handbasket since the moment Eve bit that 
fruit. We just see our generation and think it's worse. But the world is always flowing away from God, not towards God. Always. Any of you ever swim in the ocean? Who swam in the ocean? How many of you have ever experienced not a riptide, but just a gentle undertow? When I say undertow, you know what I'm talking about? Like you don't really realize it, but you walk out, you know, in front of where your towels and your chairs and your umbrella are. You're out there swimming, hanging out, playing with the kids. And then you, next thing you know, you come out of the water and you're 200 yards down the beach and you never knew you were being pulled away. That's how the world is. That's how Satan uses the world to cause us in our la-la, in our focus on unimportant things, causes us to drift away from God. He uses the world around us. That's why John writes in 1 John 2, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. It's interesting to me that the three things that John mentions in that passage are actually originally gifts from God. Physical pleasure, that is a gift from God. Material blessings, a gift from God. The desire for significance to make a difference and impact, that is from God. But when we love those things more than God, when we pursue those things and try to satisfy those desires apart from God's plan and purpose, we end up empty and drifting further and further away. Satan is working in the world. You can just float in that undertow or you can dig in and start swimming against that flow. But it's not only the world around us, but a second tool that Satan uses are the desires within us. The desires within us. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that Satan is the tempter. That you see that in the two bookend encounters that Jesus had with Satan. In the wilderness at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and in the garden just before the cross. You see Satan being the tempter. What is that? What is temptation? Where does temptation come from? How does temptation work? Well, there's a lot in the Bible about that, but I believe the New Testament book of James has one of the best descriptions of temptation there is. James 1.14. Notice what it says. Temptation comes from our what? Our own desires. And then check this out. Which entice us and drag us away. Keyword, entice. That's the key word. I looked it up on Blue Letter Bible. It is the Greek verb, de la otso. And it literally means to bait or to lure. It's a fishing term, to bait or to lure. Now, when I think of a fishing lure, I think of something that looks real, but it's not. It looks like a worm, but it's not really a worm. It looks like a minnow, but it's a counterfeit minnow. It looks just like a bug swimming on top of the water, but it's not real. It's fake, and it is full of hooks. And that's what Satan loves to do to get us to go for the counterfeit, 
to try to fulfill these God-given desires in ungodly ways, to try to meet these legitimate needs that we have, but to take a shortcut and meet them in illegitimate ways, right? We all have a God-given desire for significance, right? To live a life that makes a difference. And God says that comes from sacrifice and service. Significant comes from putting others ahead of your own. And Satan says, no, that's too hard. That's too much work. That won't be. Everybody's going to walk on you. What you need to go for is power. Go for prestige. Go for position. That's where significant comes from. And we see that lure and boom, we bite. And then we're hooked. We've tried to fulfill that God-given desire in an ungodly way. Intimacy. Intimacy. It's part of how God created. He put us in, in, with a desire in us to have an intimate relationship, not only with him, but with another human being. And I'm not just talking about physical intimacy. Physical intimacy is supposed to be the outward expression of an inward heart-soul intimacy where you are known and can know another. Know everything as much as you can. That is the intimacy that we crave. And God says you fulfill that need in the boundaries of a biblical marriage. And Satan says, that's too much work. That's too hard. Just go for the casual sex. Just go for sleeping around. Or look, you don't even need another person. Just open up your computer. It's right there. That's what pornography is, by the way. It is counterfeit intimacy. It looks like intimacy, and it even feels a little bit like intimacy till you bite it, and then you are hooked. And here's the thing you need to understand. Satan is an expert fisherman. He knows exactly which bait to use against you. And you say, wait a minute, Philip. You said Satan couldn't read my mind or my thoughts. He can't. He doesn't have to. We reveal our weaknesses every day. If you don't know what your weaknesses, your temptations are, ask somebody who knows you really well. We give our hand away, and Satan knows what bait to use. And here's what's so evil about Satan. He's the one throwing the lure out there, and then when we bite it and are hooked, he comes around on the back end and covers us with guilt and shame. How could you fall for that? right? God could never accept you. You're so bad. You're a horrible person. And he attacks from the front with the bait and on the backside with guilt and shame. And let me just tell you, shame never comes from God. It is always from the enemy. He uses the world around us, the desires within us, and then thirdly, using the lies we tell ourselves. Satan loves to use the lies we tell ourselves. That's why in John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. What does that mean to be the father of lies? It means that all lies come from Satan. All lies. Now, everybody knows lying is wrong. Nobody thinks lying is a good thing. But what about those little white lies? What about those little lies we tell because to tell the whole truth would hurt somebody? Surely that's okay. Or how about those partial truths we love to tell, where we leave parts out? Or how about the exaggerations we have, where we stretch the truth in in order to make ourselves look better? 
Are those bad? Years ago, when our boys were in college, one of them called me a couple of weeks into the first semester of his freshman year. He'd just been away at college a couple of weeks, and he called me and said, Dad, I need to ask you a question. I'm like, yeah, buddy, what is it? Is there ever anywhere in the Bible where it says it's okay to lie? Now, look, you got a kid away at college. He calls, asks you that question. You better perk up, right? Something's going on, right? And I'm like, okay, bud, what's up? What's going on? And here was the situation. He had a situation where he knew if he told the truth, it would hurt. It would be emotionally painful for another person. And so he's looking for a loophole, and he's, he's wanting to know, is it okay to just have a little white lie or not tell the whole truth? How would you answer that question? I can tell you how I answered it. No, 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 no. It is never okay to lie. And you say, why do you say that, Philip? Because all lies come from Satan. Look at what David writes in Psalm 51.6. You, talking about God, you want me to be completely truthful. You know, if something is 98% true, you know what it is? A lie. And it's in that 2% that Satan loves to play. That little gray area that we convince ourselves is no problem, no issue. But yet it's in that 2% that Satan is often working. Great picture of this in Genesis, right? When Eve is tempted by the serpent, Satan the serpent. Right? You know, God set them up in the Garden of Eden and said, everything here is yours. You can eat from the fruit of all the trees except this one. Do not eat from this tree the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so sure enough, Satan comes along and says to Eve, so God said you can't eat any of the fruit from any of the trees. Lie, right? Eve's response, oh no. We can eat from any of the trees except this one. God said we can't eat the fruit from that tree, and we can't even touch it. Lie number two, right? Now Eve is lying. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. And you see how one lie builds another? And you start down this slippery slope that leads to destruction. It destroys relationships. It destroys trust. It destroys integrity, things that are easy to lose and very hard to gain back. And Satan loves to use the lies we tell ourselves. So as I look at just the reality of Satan and demons, as I look at the ways they oppose us, it begs the question, what am I supposed to do? How do I fight back? There's a lot of passages of Scripture that talk about fighting back against Satan, but I think the clearest, most simple instructions we have on this come again from the New Testament book of James. James chapter 4 says, so simply, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Very clear, very simple, two-point strategy to fighting back against Satan and demons. First, resist. Resist the devil. Don't just go with the flow. Pay attention to the ways you're thinking. Pay attention to the choices you're making. Be intentional with your life. Resist. I looked up the word resist, and it means basically to stay away from. To not flirt with, 
to keep your distance from. That's what it means. That's why Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this, all of this evil. Flee from it and, don't miss this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Best way to get Satan to flee from you is for you to flee from him, away from him, and, don't miss this, run towards God. It's not just running away from the devil, it's running towards God and the things of God. Two reasons we keep biting the same hooks over and over. One is because we focus on what we don't want instead of what we do want, right? Think about that thing that tempts you, right? And so to resist it, you focus on it. I'm not going to look at that kind of stuff. I'm not going to open my computer. I'm not going to go to that website. You're focusing on the very thing you don't want, right? I'm not going to eat that donut. I'm not going to eat that donut. I'm not going to eat that fresh, hot, juicy. Yeah, and the next thing you know, you're covered with glaze, right? And then a diabetic, come on, why? Because you move towards what you focus on. Don't focus on what you do want. Focus on and pursue what you do want, the things of God. The second reason we keep biting the same hooks is we love to see how close to the edge we can live. Right? We don't put our guardrails and our behavior and choices way away from the cliff. We like to have them right on the edge of the cliff so we can live right on that edge. Because I'm free. Jesus has set me free. I'm free to go right up to the edge. Yes, you're free to go right up to the edge, but you're just as likely to fall off that cliff the closer you live to it. Right? I mean, let's say anger is your thing. That's your lure. Right? And, and social media is your bait. And you, you read, somebody posts stuff on Facebook and all of a sudden that anger rises up in you and man, you're texting, you're angry texting and all of a sudden you post it and you feel better for about two minutes and then you think about what you said and how you said it and you're like, oh, not again. Why did I do that again? And so what do you do? Do you delete? Do you get off of social media? Oh no, I'm free in Christ. There's nothing wrong with it. I just won't respond. I'll keep scrolling. I'll keep reading it. I just won't respond. And that works really well till somebody finally posts something on a day that you're tired or exhausted or struggling, and then you can't have, <laughs> you blow them up with a text, right? Why? Because you stayed too close to the edge. Let's say for you it's lust, maybe it's pornography, and you, you, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm moving back from the edge, I'm going to put all this software on my computer, and I've got accountability partners, and I'm in a support group. That's great. That's in the middle. That's where you need to be, but you think, oh, it's just Maxim magazine. It's, just, it's not real pornography. It's in bounds. It, it's not, you know, covered. It's not hidden in the store. It's right there in Walmart. In the, and all of a sudden, you're picking it up, and then boom, you're right back in the same old place. Listen, the closer you get to the edge, the more likely you will drive your life off that cliff. Resist. And then the second thing James says you got to do is you got to humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God, right? You might remember we talked about this last week. 
to be yielded, to be surrendered, to, to live with your sponge in an open hand so that you can absorb more. The reason humility, that letting go and trusting God is so effective, because it's the antidote to Satan's greatest weapon, pride. I believe one of the biggest dangers for mature believers, and many of you are mature believers, the biggest danger you face with Satan and the enemy is your spiritual arrogance. You think, oh, I could never fall into that. I've grown so far beyond that. Uh, My relationship with Jesus is so good. I could never fall for that temptation. Well, let me tell you, any Christ follower can fall into any sin at any time given the right set of circumstances. Let me say that again. Any Christ, I don't care if you've been a mature believer, home group leader, pastor, bishop, whatever, any of us can fall into any sin at any time given the right set of circumstances. The more prideful I am, the more I try to fight against the enemy with my own strength and my own power, the more likely I am to get beat down by Satan and his minions. One of my favorite pictures of this takes place in the New Testament book of Acts, the 19th chapter. The apostle Paul is ministering in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was full of the occult. There were all kinds of occultic practices and Satan worship and all of that. So while Paul was in Ephesus, he had to spend a lot of time casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he cast out a lot of demons. Now, there were seven brothers that lived in Ephesus that saw what Paul was doing. And Paul was casting out so many demons that there was a buzz all around. I mean, you think about ministry. Casting out demons is a really cool ministry to have. And they're like, this is really cool. Everybody's excited. There's a buzz about this. We should do this. And so these seven brothers, the the sons of Sceva, who was a priest, so leave it to the preacher's kids to do something stupid. (laughs) These seven idiots decide that they're going to start casting out demons. And so they go into the house of a man possessed by an evil spirit, and they say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And the Bible says the evil spirit looked at him and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? You. Let me just tell you, if a demon ever says that to you, run, forest, run, right? You are in trouble. But notice what happens, verse 16. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered all of them, all seven of them. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Let me tell you something. You ever come out of a fight naked? You've been whooped. You have lost and lost big. And as funny as that is, the reality of the beatings that Satan is giving to the people around us, to our children, to our grandchildren, the numbers of us who have had our marriages and our lives and our health beat down by him, it's anything but funny. Some of you, like me, Know the pain of giving in to that temptation and seeing it destroy your life. Giving in to that habit over and over again. 
giving in to that weakness in your marriage or your family. You see firsthand the power and destruction of the enemy. But listen, if that's you, I'm convinced God in a supernatural way brought you here today to encourage you, to tell you that you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live in defeat. So I want to give you this word from God to leave here with today. 1 John 4, 4. But you, if you're a believer, you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory. Not in your own strength, not because of who you are, but because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in this world. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you so much that your word is so clear in how we are to fight this battle. And it begins with recognizing that we don't fight it. That it's not in our strength, it's not in our power, but in you. I know many of us here today are struggling, not with some kind of weird, satanic, possession or control. Some of us are dealing with mental health challenges. Some of us are dealing with physical health challenges. Some of us are dealing with prodigal sons and daughters. Some of us are dealing with marriages that are right on the edge. And some of us are trying to pick up the pieces from marriages that have fallen apart. And I thank you in the midst of that brokenness and beating that we have taken from life, you're still moving. You're still working. You are still somehow in some way bringing the ultimate victory through the name and the work of Jesus. So Lord, help us to hold on, to swim against the current, to be intentional, to connect with others, to get out of isolation and live an honest, transparent, truthful life, a life with others who can walk with us. And together, we can live in that victory and bring the light of your love into the dark, dark places in our community and our world. That's our desire, Jesus. And we pray it in your name because it is the name that is above every other name. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray, amen.